And Karen can go through this and only have a little Tylenol. Man, I'm, I'm a wimp. So God is very gracious, and it is good to be back. Well, this morning we're going to return to the subject of spiritual warfare. We've actually been in this for, uh, believe it or not, four months. We're uh, starting with Ephesians 6, and we'll, verses 10 through 17. I'd like to read that passage since it's been... Uh, this is four weeks ago we last talked about it, just to put us back to, to speed and where we need to be as we look at this very important subject. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains and proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let me quickly review a few of the key points there in the first four verses of this passage as we uh, just try and set our mindset again about what Paul is talking about. First of all, we need to remember that we cannot engage in spiritual warfare unless it is in the Lord's strength and in obedience to the directions He gives us. There are so many books out there that go into all these formulas that have nothing to do with Scripture, and they make spiritual warfare some great complex thing of you got to do this procedure and this procedure, and you got to rebuke this thing and that thing, and it's not that difficult. It comes down simply, this is what God says. Do what he says, and you'll be fine. Resist the devil, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It really is that simple. Here we're found, how do we submit to God and resist the devil? That's why we're spending the time in this passage. But you cannot do this in your own strength. It must be in the Lord's strength and then do it according to his commands. Now that is, we put on the full armor of God so we can stand firm in the battle. Second, understand that our adversary is a schemer. He seeks to exploit your weaknesses. He is very well informed, both by his observation of humans throughout the millennia, as well as his observation of you personally. He knows where your buttons are. He knows how to get them pushed. And Satan's desire is to usurp God. And so he desires then to use any means, any method that will work against you to give you a diminished view of God or to get you to stumble into sin, to get you to worship something other than God or give the true God improper worship. That's what he's after. And one of the devil's first strategies is to confuse you about who the enemy is. 
That's why Paul is so clear here. He says, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Too often, we end up with the idea that the person who's causing us problems is the enemy. That person's flesh and blood. They may be used by the enemy, but they themselves are not the enemy. Our enemy is Satan and his cohorts, the wickedness that is on this earth and in heavenly places, the evil that they are throwing against us, often using people as their pawns, but the people are not the enemy. The people are the mission field. And our desire is to see those people, no matter how nasty they are towards us, no how, how much they persecute us, remember Jesus told us to pray for those who persecute us, to love even our enemies, is to see them saved. And our response to them needs to be accordingly. They are the mission field. They are not the enemy. What is behind them is the enemy. But I do understand, and you understand, that is very difficult sometimes to, to, to remember in the midst when someone's being really nasty to you. But they're not the enemy. There's something behind them that is the enemy. In Ephesians 6.13, Paul again commands us to take up, he says, the full armor of God so that may, we may be able to resist the devil and stand firm. Stand firm. We are not to lose ground when we are attacked. Throughout the rest of the passage, he goes on, explains each piece of armor and how then that works to help us stand firm, resist the schemes of the devil. Now, the first piece of armor is to gird our loins with truth. Now, remember, Paul is in prison himself. He's probably chained or at least closely guarded by a Roman hoplite soldier, and he's looking at simply what that soldier's wearing, his equipment, and he's using that as his analogy for what we need in spiritual warfare. And one of the first things you would notice, or he noticed about the Roman soldier, is he had this belt, a girdle around his middle. The soldier would use that as soon as he was called into action. He would pull up his, um, his tunic, kind of a long flowing thing, something like a dress. He'd pull it up so his legs would be free to move. He'd have agility. Otherwise, it would encumber his legs. He would stumble. So that's the first thing when you were called to action. You girded up your loins, you girded up this tunic, tied the belt around. The belt also enabled, was a place you could hang your sword. It held everything together. Now you can go out, you're ready for action. Paul uses that as an analogy for truth. Truth for us as Christians is what ties everything together. It gives us the ability to be agile, to move quickly in response to the attacks that come against us. If we do not have truth, we will stumble, we will fall, we will be victims of our adversary. It's foundational for us. And because it is foundational, we also find it is the primary area that the devil attacks. He is going to attack truth. Remember, the devil is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. And ultimately, all those lies are going to be against God and his character. It's slandering him so that you do not believe what he says. You will fall for something else and live your life opposite of what's available to you. When we're thoroughly grounded in truth, we can easily resist the lies. If we're not, we will succumb to them. So the greater our awareness and trust in the nature and the character of God, the greater our ability to stand firm against the lies of our adversary. Now, over the weeks, we have exposed quite a few of those lies. We've examined lies against God's existence, 
against his infinite nature, against his truthfulness, against his wisdom, against his holiness, against his righteousness and his justice, against his goodness and love and his grace and mercy. This morning, I want us to look at lies that Satan has against God's jealousy, anger, and wrath. Now, those are often seen by us as negative. That's because generally when those exist within us, they are negative. God is completely different than us, and that's what we need to point out. Otherwise, we will succumb to these lies when we think of God and these characteristics. Now, in a previous sermon, I spoke about God's very nature and his character and how he is set apart from us. His infinite attributes, those would be also called his non-moral attributes, his non-communicable attributes. These would include things like his, uh, his being eternal, his being omniscient, all-knowing, being uh, omnipresent, everywhere present, omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, being immutable, unchanging, and being sovereign. These characteristics, these attributes, set God apart from everything else that exists. There is nothing else that has those attributes. He is the only one. Only he is God. What is set apart, by definition, is holy. These attributes set God apart. He is holy. He is different from us completely. Now, God has other attributes, other characteristics. We describe these as communicable or moral attributes because we are to reflect them. We are not going to have them the same way God does, but we are to reflect them. God himself is intrinsically righteous, just, truthful, wise, good, loving, merciful, gracious, patient, long-suffering, and faithful. None of those attributes in God arise from source outside him. In us, it always arises from a source outside us. None of those attributes in God can be improved because he is perfect in every single one of them. For us, we must be improving. And so he is separate from us. So even those things in which we reflect God, these moral attributes, we are only a reflection. God is completely different from us. Every single one of these attributes, when applied to God or talked about God, is holy. Holy. Now, this is an extremely important point when it comes to considering jealousy, anger, and wrath, because we do tend to think of those three characteristics as negative. Why? Because in us, there is almost always, not every time, but almost always, some element of sin when they're manifest in our lives. Our tendency is then to project that upon God and think he's the same way. He is not. He is holy. We are not. When we believe the devil's lie that God is in some way similar to us, rather than us being a dim reflection of him, we attribute our characteristics upon him and think of him like he's like us. That diminishes him in our minds. We have a wrong view of him, and we succumb to Satan leading us into farther lies and then not responding properly, not living the way that God would have us to live. God's jealousy, his anger, his wrath do not have the same type of motivations ours do. 
He is different from us. God's jealousy is a holy jealousy. His anger is a holy anger. His wrath, a holy wrath. So again, it sets him apart from us. He is holy. Now let's take a hard look at jealousy first. We tend to think of this particular characteristic as negative because in us it is tied in with suspicion, with fear, and with envy. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines this type of jealousy as follows. And uh, if you don't have one of those, I would recommend you pick one up. It certainly gives you a much better definition for English words, especially when it comes to Scripture, than what the modern dictionaries do. Words tend to decline in meaning, or they gain new meanings, and they, they just don't write as well as he did back then. Listen to this definition. Jealousy is that passion or peculiar unique uh, uneasiness which arises from the fear that a rival may rob us of the affection of one whom we love or the suspicion that he has already done it. Or it is the uneasiness which arises from the fear that another does or will enjoy some advantage which we desire for ourselves. A man's jealousy is excited by the attentions of a rival to his favorite lady. A woman's jealousy is roused by her husband's attentions to another woman. The candidate for office manifests a jealousy of others who seek the same office. The jealousy of a student is awakened by the apprehension that his fellow will bear away the palm of praise. In short, jealousy is awakened by whatever may exalt others or give them pleasures and advantages which we desire for ourselves. Jealousy is nearly allied to envy, after it is obtained by others, or I'm sorry, jealousy is nearly allied to envy, for jealousy, before a good is lot by ourselves, is converted to envy after it's obtained by others. In other words, when somebody gets what we wanted, now we're jealous of them. Envy is tied in with that. That is an improper side of jealousy, and that's why we tend to think of it only in negative terms. So when some says, well, this verse says God's jealous, we think, well, God can't be jealous, that's bad. But there's another definition, another aspect of jealousy, which is proper. There are things we should be jealous about. It is a proper jealousy, and that is the side of jealousy that God exhibits. Webster lists this additional definition. Jealousy, suspicious cautions or vigilance, and two, an earnest concern for the welfare and honor of others. That was Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. He was jealous that they might be deceived and turn away from Christ and follow a lie. And so he was jealous for them. In a similar way, we find in 2 Kings 19, Elijah was jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, because Israel had forsaken the Lord. He had, they had turned their backs on the covenant with him. They had torn down God's altars and he had killed God's prophets. Elijah was jealous for the Lord. That's this proper jealousy. Now, this type of jealousy can be recognized as zeal, zealousness. It, um, or it also can end up resulting in indignation. Webster adds this concerning this type of jealousy. God's jealousy signifies his concern for his own character and government with a holy indignation against those who violate his laws and offend his majesty. An example of this is in Psalm 79.5 when Asaph cries out, 
over the destruction of Jerusalem. How long, O Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Will thy jealousy burn like fire? God has a proper jealousy. His perfection in all his attributes set his jealousy apart from even the slightest taint of any kind of improper jealousy. God, for example, is absolutely free of suspicion. Why? Because he's omniscient. He already knows everything. He does not need proof. He does not need evidence, as we would, because for us, suspicion requires an element of the unknown or imagining something without proof or evidence. God doesn't need that. He already knows the future. He already knows what's in man's heart. He already has the proof. He already has the evidence. God is without suspicion. Because God is omnipotent, omniscient, and sovereign, he is also without the possibility of fear. Nothing can catch God unaware. Nothing can overpower God. Nothing can outwit God. Nothing can thwart his will, as Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel 4.35. Nothing can thwart the will of God. In addition, nothing can cause any actual diminishment of his person, his attributes, or glory. Just because you don't give him the glory he deserves does not take away from his glory. It still exists. You're the loser there, not God. Because God is infinitely perfect in all his attributes, that he is immutable, and he is completely self-sufficient, God is also absolutely free from envy, the key element in unjust or improper jealousy. What could any other being possibly possess that does not already belong to God? There is no being that's superior to him in any way, shape, or form. God does not even begrudge those things that are possessed by some other being or is enjoyed by some other being. Why? God's the one that has provided it for them. Why would he begrudge them it? Consider that God even is able to cause what is meant for evil, for good. Was that not Joseph's conclusion? His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Is that not what Romans 8.28 tells us? It's not a cliche. It's a truth. God does work together for good for everyone who loves him and is called according to his commandments. If we are going to follow him, he is going to work out even the most tragic circumstances for good. We don't know it going ahead, We may not even know it looking back, though we often do. We may not know to eternity, but God does know what he's doing. A God that can do that, why would he envy anything? He doesn't. And so God's jealousy, a holy jealousy, no aspect, suspicion, fear, envy, do not exist in him. God's jealousy arises from perfectly valuing what should be valued and then zealously guarding those things. That's a proper jealousy. You value what should be valued, and therefore you're zealous to guard those things. The first reference to God's jealousy is in Exodus 20, verse 5. And there God explains the reason for the second of the Ten Commandments, not to make an idol or worship them or serve them. He said, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the reason idolatry is 
has such a, a strong response by God, he is properly jealous. In Exodus 34, 14, God repeats that same command. He tells them not to worship any God, other God, saying this, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He uses it as a name for himself because it is a characteristic of him. Would you really be willing to tell someone, yeah, the God I serve, his name is Jealous? Well, it is. And he is jealous for your worship of him because he properly values it. He values both the relationship you are to have with him and the worship you owe to him because he is your creator. And because it is due him and it's properly valued, he zealously guards it. And he is indignant when that relationship is rejected or that worship is withheld. It is a proper response. The third commandment is not to take the name of the Lord in vain. It's also a commandment we need to be careful to keep. Why? Because it ties right into his jealousy. In Ezekiel 39, verse 25, we find the Lord is jealous for his holy name. He warned in Exodus 20, verse 7, that he would not leave unpunished those who would take his name in vain. In Leviticus 24, 11 through 16, there's an example of a man who did blaspheme the name. They took him before Moses. What are we to do? Stone him. It was a serious offense. Jealousy for his name, it's not because he has suspicion, fear, or envy. It's simply that God properly values his holy name and he zealously guards it. Those who make light of it, those who blaspheme it, will be the recipients of God's righteous indignation and its consequences. In Zechariah 1.14, we find that God is also jealous. In fact, it says he's exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Why? 1 Kings 11.36 tells us. Because he has chosen that place to bear his name. And so he properly values it. Accordingly, he zealously guards it, and he is indignant when something is treating it incorrectly. And so we find, really in this, there's a direct link between God's jealousy and his anger and wrath. But that link also tells us why there's such a difference between God's anger and wrath and ours. The same kind of difference that's different between God's jealousy and our jealousy. His is righteous, ours is not. Now, God gave many warnings that he's a jealous God and that provoking that jealousy would result in his indignation, his anger, and his wrath. For example, in Deuteronomy 4.24, which is actually uh, quoted in Hebrews, God describes himself saying, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is not the kind of God you want to just come up and be a buddy with. He is a consuming fire. Understand the nature of who we are worshiping. A consuming fire. There should be a healthy respect coming into his presence. You don't want to provoke the Lord's jealousy. And since God's jealousy is holy, the foundation of his anger and wrath are also, also holy and righteous. There's a just reason for God's anger. And it separates him, again, from man, because there's usually our reasons are unjust. Let me give you some examples of this. In uh, Deuteronomy 6, 
14 and 15, we find a warning that Moses gives concerning provoking God's jealousy and what his reaction would be. He says, you shall not follow other gods or any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You're going into this land which was pagan. They were judged because of that evil. Don't go into the land and then start doing what they were doing. That's the warning. The second generation is just about to go in. Don't do what they did, or the judgment will come against you as well. In Joshua 24, 19, Joshua warns this same generation, or actually be that generation, their children, just before he dies himself. Joshua 24, 19, and 20. He says, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. He's done good. You've taken the land. He's where your, the promises are being fulfilled. But if you turn and follow other gods, understand his judgment is going to come upon you because he's a jealous God. His, you're going to provoke that jealousy his anger and his wrath, and it will result in your condemnation. But Israel and Judah did exactly that. And so we find that in um, 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 22. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. Psalm 78, 58, and 59 recounts, they provoked him with their high places, aroused his jealousy with their graven images. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel. The Lord judged Israel exactly the way he had warned he would judge them. They provoked his jealousy. Now in Asaph, in Psalm, um, Psalm 79, I mentioned a few minutes ago, he laments over the ruins of Jerusalem. And in that lament, he petitions the Lord about his anger and about his jealousy that would not burn forever. He petitions the Lord to forgive them, interesting enough, for his own namesake. For the sake of your own great name, Lord, forgive. And what do we find in the, the prophets to come? Even before it happened, we find elements of it. But in the post-exilic prophets, we find that hope of restoration, a hope Israel would be returned because God's fury did come. His jealousy did depart. He was pacified. He was angry no more. An example of that, Zechariah 8.2, the nation of Israel would be restored. God himself would return to Zion. He would dwell again in the midst of Jerusalem among them, and Jerusalem, therefore, would be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, on the holy mountain. Why? Because God would be there again. That is the future. God is forgiving. When God's holy jealousy is provoked, it results in anger. And though God is long-suffering, as proved by both his dealings in the Old Testament with ancient Israel, and in the present with us, I think we always need to keep that in mind, God's patience with us should always cause us to praise him and thank him that he is so patient. He doesn't have to be, but he is. But that patience will at some point in time end 
and he will carry out his wrath of judgment against those who've rejected him. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 gives that warning. Most of you are familiar with it. That point in time when God will return and his judgment will be dealt out in retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and be away from the presence of its power when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day. The warning is still there. God's holy jealousy gives proper motivation to his anger and wrath, and that motivation sets it apart from our own anger and wrath. It needs to be pointed out that because God is always in harmony with all of his attributes, they perfectly harmonize with each other. We find that when it comes to his anger and wrath, God is completely free of any kind of injustice, any kind of wrong application of his anger and wrath, any inappropriate level of response, or any mistiming. In other words, God's anger and wrath are holy because they're not only uh, always based in a proper motivation, they are also displayed and acted upon properly too. Again, that sets his wrath and anger apart from the way we respond. We tend to think of anger and wrath as negative because it's very seldom that man has a truly pure, proper motivation for anger. Usually there's some element of sin tied in with it. And even more rare to have a proper display of that anger and response towards it. When man does have a proper motivation and he is responding properly with his anger and wrath, we use a different term trying to distinguish that. We call it righteous indignation. It does occur. It should occur. I wish it would occur more. Righteous indignation, we could say, would be one way to describe God's anger and wrath in a way that we generally think of them removed from any element of sin. His anger and wrath is always a righteous indignation. Our motives, tragically, are very seldom so pure. We often react with injustice or a wrong application or an inappropriate level of response, or we mistime the application of it, or a combination of all of them. So again, God is very different than us. Now please understand, though, there are things we should be jealous of. There are things we should be angry about. There are things that should receive the full weight and measure of our wrath. We should be jealous for God's name and honor. We should be jealous concerning those things that are holy and righteous. We should be angry about sin, both in our own life and in the lives of others and how it affects everybody. We should be angry about those things. But that anger then should have a positive result of motivating us to actions of righteousness in overcoming it. We should seek to defend the helpless, uphold justice, seek relief for the suffering, because those things reflect the character of God. Understand that anger itself is simply an emotion. Anger itself is not sin. It is simply an emotion. Now, there may be sin that has caused that, and that's why you're angry, because of a sin issue. Or you may have anger and then respond in a sinful manner. But the emotion itself is not the problem. That's why Ephesians 4.26 tells us to be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We need to deal with it, otherwise it will cause a root of bitterness which defiles many. 
we need to carefully examine our reasons for being angry. We don't want to fall into that bitterness. We want to understand the emotion and what it's revealing so that we might repent of those things that are causing, uh, or that are a simple reason for that emotion. We want to be careful to respond properly when that emotion is there. But anger is a great motivator. It gives us a lot of energy. Even if our anger is truly a righteous indignation, we respond with humility. We never go for revenge because that belongs only to the Lord. We leave in his hands. God's jealousy, his anger, and wrath are always holy. Always holy. Ours very seldom holy. Now the devil is going to lie in each of these areas. He's going to lie about God's jealousy, his anger, and his wrath in one or one of, usually it's two opposite directions and then some variation in between. He either tends to magnify it to use it as a basis to claim that God is not worthy of our worship, or he's going to the opposite extreme and claim God does not, or at least should not have those attributes at all. There lies against God's other attributes as well. Point out. If he's lying about God's jealousy, anger, and wrath, he's also lying about all the other attributes God has. Because he's going to end up lying about his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wisdom. He's going to lie about all those things. They all end up being tied together. But let's start off with some of his lies about God being jealous. The first one is, if, God, if, if Satan can be successful in keeping a person ignorant of the fact that God is a jealous God, or get them to deny that God is a jealous God, then those people are just going to pursue in ignorance, they're provoking of God to jealousy. They're going to continue worshiping something other than God or worshiping him improperly, provoking him. And so Satan's happy with that. So that's one lie. The devil can go to the opposite extreme. He can try and magnify God's jealousy to the point where people think God is like them and God's jealousy is like their jealousy. And if so, then God isn't worthy of worship. He's suspicious and fearful and insecure, and if he's those things, then he's also needy and probably erratic. How could such a God be trusted or worthy of worship? A God who is fearful himself cannot give any basis for overcoming fear, can he? And a God that is envious, he's a small God. He's in danger of being usurped by some other being, and therefore definitely not worthy of worship or of being trusted because some other being might take his place, might prove himself to be superior. So Satan will lie in that vein to destroy, in your mind, what God is really like. You see, a proper awareness of God's jealousy magnifies him as unique. And it, it gives a lot of uh, weight to the supreme importance of worshiping him and him alone. There's only one God, and only he is to be worshipped. Satan lies in similar ways about God's anger. You might try and deny it, keep people ignorant of it. But the scriptures are very clear. Again, God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24, Hebrews 12.29. Throughout the Old Testament, the anger of the Lord is described as a burning against those who sin against him. Numbers 32.14, Psalm 78.49, Isaiah 13.13, all are simply examples of his burning anger against sin. The same anger is also seen in the New Testament. Jesus driving out the money changers in John chapter 2. He was angry. He had a scourge. He was using it. He was whipping. He wasn't going, 
please move your table. Can you move it out of here? He was driving them out. Tables were flying. He was angry. Paul uh, didn't think of um, Matthew 23. Jesus pronouncing woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He's not being nice and kind and gentle and speaking softly. He is giving them a pronouncement of condemnation because of their rejection of him. The rejection of the Holy Spirit proving who Jesus was. Paul refers to God's anger in Romans 1.18, saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. His wrath is still on us. It's seen in Revelation, the wrath of God that comes against mankind and Satan in his various judgments. Revelation 14.10 gives an example of that. If the devil can emphasize God's other attributes, the exclusion of God having anger and wrath, then people feel safe in the midst of their sins and think they're in his presence. They discount God. They reason God is simply going to accept them just as they are, and there is no need to change. Do not mistake God's patience and his long-suffering for indifference, tolerance, or acceptance. It's not true. But there are a lot of people that have done that. God is love. God is good. God is... They emphasize those things and forget God is a jealous, wrathful God. He is going to punish because he is holy. He is a consuming fire. And they forget that. Oh, God's just going to accept me the way I am. I, I have no need to change. I don't need to pursue holiness. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. Even as a Christian, you can't. You may be forgiven your sins. You're guaranteed heaven because of Christ. But if you still walk in unholiness, in unrighteousness, God says he's going to chasten you. Now, I'm very grateful when God chastens me. Because it tells me he loves me because he chastens whom he loves. The greatest fear is when without that chastening, because then I'm illegitimate and I don't belong to him. But I don't anxiously look for his chastening. I want to avoid it. There's a bunch of kids in here. Do you anxiously want your parents to chasten you? Now they're going, no, 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 no. It's not happy when you're getting it, but afterward it does bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Same thing is true with God. Yet so many people have bought into this lie of Satan. The devil can promote a different lie, too. He can promote the lie that God should not be angry. Again, it's based on the lie that God is like us, and his anger is like us, and therefore it's improper for God to be angry. And there are many that believe that lie as well. They think themselves to be actually morally superior because God gets angry and I don't. Well, that's not true and we all know it. They end up condemning themselves because Romans 2 tells them they're going to be condemned by their very actions. Claiming that they don't get angry, they're morally superior to God. Their own actions of anger are going to condemn them. Demonstrating again God's utter moral superior, superiority and their inferiority. Again, God's anger and wrath, it's not like ours. God's anger is so different. Our anger is generally born out of selfishness. 
response of sin. God's anger is born out of holiness and responds against sin. James 1.20 tells the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, and that is true. But at the same time, the anger of God is a display of his righteousness against sin. Our anger, we seek to usurp proper authority, place ourselves as the judge and gain revenge for what we suffer. God is the proper authority. His judgments are always just, and revenge belongs to him. Our anger is usually improper, both in origin and display. God's anger is always proper and is marked by holiness and righteousness. The devil can also lie by magnifying the Lord's anger, making it more than it is. Now, most of the devil's lies are based on an overemphasis of one attribute to the exclusion and diminishment of the others. The same thing is true here. In this case, the focus becomes all the passages when God displays anger and wrath with the conclusion that God is mean. Well, that's a lie that has several variations. At one extreme, God is cruel. He's a cruel org. He's out to crush mankind, and therefore mankind should reject him. Again, thinking themselves to be superior in ethics and of higher um, moral standard. Now, that idea is very common among atheists and agnostics, often used as an excuse for their rejection. I can't worship a God that's so mean and cruel that would allow bad things to happen. Isn't that one of their excuses so often? They bought the, the, uh, the devil's lie. Liberals are only slightly better than that. They conclude the God of the Old Testament is cruel, angry, harsh, and judging. And then say the God of the New Testament is kind and loving and forgiving. All that does is show a great ignorance of both the Old and New Testaments. God is loving in both Testaments, and he is judging, jealous, angry in both Testaments. It's the same God. Liberals can't seem to understand that. But such are the nature of the devil's lies, and they believe it. Now, more concerned to us, though, because I'm assuming all of you have not bought into those extremes, is a milder form of the same lie. And it does affect us. This lie turns God into what I would say is the great cosmic killjoy. He loves you so much that he'll forgive your sins. But he is not going to allow you to have any fun. That's not allowed. Many people believe that, Christians, non-Christians alike. Non-Christians will put off becoming serious about spiritual matters because of this. I don't want to come to Christ. I don't want to listen to the gospel presentation. I don't want to hear anything about it because if I did, I wouldn't be able to have any fun. I'll wait till the end of my life so I can have my fun now. That's common, isn't it? That's very common. Christians have something similar. They end up thinking that God wants you to live in such a way that the command in uh, Titus 2.22 in the King James says be sober and grave means you live as if one foot is in the grave. Get that smile off your face. You're supposed to be holy. And they live that way. We've all met them. They're legalistic. They've got this list of standards and they think, ah, oh, I've got to do these things. That's not true. Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, didn't he? John 10.10. 10. In Romans 8.32, Paul 
Paul said, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how we not with him also freely give us all things? Does that sound like God's holding back on us? No. He's not preventing us from having a full life. We need to understand the prohibitions that God has given us are to prevent us from experiencing the tragedies that follow the sins that some people falsely believe are fun. I remember um, when I graduated from college, the uh, last day I was on campus, uh, a bunch of the guys I was graduating with were going to go up to this uh, nightclub. I'd never been to one. And we walked in, and of course it's dark in there, and uh, we had to walk, there's a bar there, we walked past this bar to the area you're supposed to be able to sit. Now it's really dark, and I'm, I'm walking and my feet are going, like, ooh, what am I stepping on? Then you can't quite see this couch thing we're sitting on. It's like, I don't know if I really want to sit on this. Because of what's on the floor, I wonder what's on the couch. And then they had these speakers. And the speaker was, well, about that far from my ear. And we're sitting around trying to talk. I could see mouths moving. I had no idea what they're saying. I'm not good at lip reading. Finally, the band took a break. Now my ears are ringing, and I hollered at one of my friends and said, Is this supposed to be fun? And he went, This is fun? I said, I've never laughed for fun as a Christian. I've never laughed. And I, I never have understood. Go out, get drunk, and in the morning you pay a nasty price. This was fun? You did this on purpose? The prohibitions God has given us aren't restriction from fun, but to keep us from the tragedies that come. There are things that are so much better than those, so much more enjoyable, so much more fun. Do you realize that Galatians 5.2 tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit? And as I'm walking with the Spirit, I have joy, and it's not uh, confined now to circumstances. It's in any circumstance, because the Spirit's with me. Philippians 4, 4, we're actually commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Christians should have a great, joyful life regardless of circumstances. But it sure sounds like a, a whole lot better than only being able to have fun when the circumstances are just perfect. It's the devil's lie that destroys the truth that leads Christians to thinking that living for God must be somber, sad, and sorrowful. That's got to be angry. It's not true. It's not true. God has anger. God has wrath. But God is also marked by love, goodness, mercy, grace, long-suffering, forgiveness, and many other wonderful characteristics of positive blessings. It's because that all of God's attributes work together that we find that we have hope. Anytime one attribute is magnified to the diminishing of the others, we're going to be out of bounds and we're probably living a double fly. They're all working in harmony. We deserve only God's condemnation of wrath because of our sins against Him. God is jealous. His jealousy is proper. He should be jealous. He should be angry, wrathful, indignant against our wrong worship of Him, our false worship, our going after anything but Him. And yet we find because God is merciful and he's patient and he's long-suffering, that just punishment is delayed 
giving a time to respond to God's calling to believe in the gracious work of love and grace given in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, completely satisfied God's justice. Completely. There's not one attribute that is pitted against the other and one's got to win. They work in complete harmony with each other. And so the jealous, angry, wrathful God is completely satisfied in justice by what Christ has done, the epitome of what true love is, demonstrated to us in his mercy and grace, offered to us without charge. No creed, we can't even earn it. We can only accept it. That is the God we serve. That is his character. That is his nature. When Moses passed before, or when the Lord passed before Moses, Exodus 34 says, this is the scene where God hid him in the cleft of the rock and he made a glory pass before him, removed his hand that Moses only saw the afterglow of God. But while he was passing, the Lord said this to Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty and punished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers and on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. We must always take in the full characteristics of God. That's what he's like. The devil slanders God's character to get you to believe a lie. And in doing so, you will not worship God properly. You will have a wrong view of him. Jesus said in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Both are true. To believe, the sinner into his love, his grace, his mercy is all received. There's great hope in him. To reject it, God is a jealous God. His wrath will abide. Questions of what do you believe? What do you believe is true? Do you believe God or the devil? Do you have eternal life or does that wrath abide upon you? Are you living in joy for the Lord or in despair of the devil? What do you believe is true? Put on your belt that you might stand firm against the king of the devil that is striving to get you to believe his lies. Put on the belt of truth. Father, we are grateful.